We're working our way through the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. So if you turn over to Matthew chapter 7, that's where we find ourselves this morning. Matthew chapter 7. We started this chapter uh, last week. And uh, if you weren't here, I encourage you to get the message from last week so it all makes sense because we're kind of kind of just going week to week through this this chapter. And uh, uh, last week we looked at the idea of judging. And uh, we looked at these verses and uh, we discovered that in verses 1 through 6, uh, verses 1 through 12 basically talk about how we're to act toward one another. That's what they deal with. In verses 1 through 6, we got up to about verse 5 last week. Uh, verses 1 through 6 talk about what we're not to do, how we're not to act one toward another. And uh, verses uh, 7 through 12 tell us what we are to do toward one another. And so last week we looked at what we're not to do. We were kind of in the negative, um, looking at the negative principle there of verse 1. It says, do not judge. And uh, you hear that a lot, you know, judge not lest you be judged. And a lot of times people take this out of context and they mean it, they, they think it means, well, you can't say anything about anything. And so if you see somebody teaching false doctrine, you can't s- step up to the plane and say, hey, wait a minute, the Bible doesn't teach that. That's judging somebody. Well, that's not judging somebody. That's making a discernment between truth and error. And as believers, we're called to do that. And so here he's talking about this critical, judgmental, condemning, kind of self-righteous attitude that the Pharisees had. And as we look through these last couple chapters, we see Jesus constantly making, drawing a parallel between what is right and what the Pharisees are doing. And so he pointed out three things. We looked at three things basically uh, last week. We made it through... the partially through the third one. We don't want to judge critically, first of all, because you, if you do that, you have an erroneous view of God himself. In other words, you're taking the place, you're usurping the place of God if you go around thinking that you know what's in everybody else's hearts. You don't. And you say, well, what's the difference between discernment and judgment? Somebody said that when you're judging people, you're thinking you know the motivation that's in their heart. Okay, discernment is basically looking at somebody's life and saying, hey, does this live up, uh, live up to what the Bible says it should live up to or not? And so if we go around with a kind of a pharisaical attitude, thinking that we're going to make everybody else right, as right as we are, <laughs> that's an erroneous view of God. We're, we're actually taking God off his judgment seat and we're thinking we can do a better job. And God says, don't do that. I don't want you to do that. That's not your place. And so when he's talking about judging there, that's what he's talking about. Secondly, we said that if you have that kind of judgment in your heart, you have an erroneous view of other people. In other words, if you're going through life thinking that everybody else is worse off than yourself, okay, that's truly a biblically an erroneous view because the Bible says that all have what? Sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all in this boat together and the boat's going down fast. Okay, there's nobody that's got their own little life raft that's floating above everybody else and saying, oh, I'm not affected by this thing called sin. We all know that in the deep, dark recesses of our hearts, we're evil people. That's what the Bible says. You knowing you being evil would give something good, he talks about in our text this morning. We don't like to hear that. 
I mean, we just don't like to hear that. We don't like to hear that about ourselves. We don't like to hear that about family members. We definitely don't like to hear that about kids or grandkids. But I mean, if the truth be told, beloved, they're little savages. They are. You know, that's, that's true. That's what the Bible says. They're born in sin. And they're selfish individuals. As we all are. I mean, they're cute and they're lovable. And yeah, that's fine. You know, they're, they're that way for, uh, you know, a couple months when they can't talk and they can't get up and around. Once they get mobile and once they learn how to communicate, it's mine, mine, me, me, I want, I want. And you see that. You don't have to teach them that. It's just because that's who they are. From the womb. We're born into sin. And so if we go around judging everybody else, thinking that nobody else is up to the standard except us, you have an erroneous view of others. And then thirdly, we we basically said that you have an erroneous view of yourself, if that's your attitude. If you think that you are somehow in the place of God and are able to go around and judge other people because you've got it all together, you've got a skewed view of yourself. And that's what the Bible says. The Bible says over and over again, when you see a brother or a sister who's fallen in a sin, what do you do? You're you're to go. Those of you who are spiritual, go to them and restore such a one. But it always says, but you better be careful because you could go down that same path. Sometimes we look at some of the sins that people do and we say, oh, I would never do that. You don't know how evil your heart is. And you don't know how bad it can be. But God does. God does. And so we shouldn't be lifting ourselves up as holier than thou, as the Pharisees were doing. We have to come alongside someone who's kind of fallen into a sin, and you never come alongside that person from over top. You don't come to somebody who's caught in a sin, and you come to them and say, Oh, you worthless sinner! How could you do something so stupid? Come on, I'm spiritual. I'll help you out of the ditch. Well, they'd probably bite your fingers off if that's how you came to them. They wouldn't want your help. Nor would any of us want someone coming to us looking down at us. And see, that's what the Pharisees did. Whenever they saw someone who was less fortunate than them or or not as, quote, spiritual as them. They always looked down their noses at them and they, they, they had to always put them in their place. And the Bible says do just the opposite. When you come to a brother or sister who's fallen and they can't get up, like the commercial, remember that commercial? I've fallen, I can't get up. I don't know why that always pops into my head, you know, the craziest time. But when that happens, you don't come to them and kick them and say, come on, get up. No, you, you, you come from underneath them. See, that's why sometimes God allows trials and tribulations into our lives because not only are they going to grow us and help us grow stronger in our faith, but God knows that at a point in time, you're going to cross paths with someone who is going through the exact same thing that you already went through. And God allows you to come alongside of them and even under them and say, hey, you know what? I know how you got in this mess because I was in that mess. And that, that helps them relate to you. That gives them kind of a kind of a, a kinship with you. So don't have an erroneous view of God or an erroneous view of others or an erroneous view of yourself. Always come alongside someone in humility, the Bible says. And that's what Jesus said to Peter in, in Luke 22. He says, Peter, Satan has desired you, that he's going to sift you like wheat. He's going to find out if you're really real, 
That's what he's basically doing. And Jesus says, but I prayed for you that your faith fail not. And then he says this, and when you are recovered, you can strengthen the brethren. See, there are times in our lives, beloved, when stuff overtakes us. And at that point, we don't need to be out there trying to strengthen the brethren. We need to be taking care of business right here in our own hearts. That's the problem with so many ministers and so many pastors and so many people in ministry. They get so caught up in ministry that they lose sight of their own well-being. And their families goes down the tubes, everything. Their own personal life goes down the tubes because they're not taking care of their own business. They're always taking care of somebody else's business. And they may mean well. But that's a basic principle. You can't go around helping others if you're not in the right place with the Lord yourself. That's why in Galatians 6, 1, it says, You who are spiritual, restore such a one. That doesn't mean that you're some spiritual giant and you've memorized all the Bible. And That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about walking by the Spirit. You can be one day old in the Lord and walk by the Spirit, be led by the Spirit, be filled with the Spirit, be controlled by the Holy Spirit. Because when you restore someone, when you're controlled by the Holy Spirit, you're going to do it with gentleness. You're going to do it with care. You're going to do it with compassion. But you have to be right with Him before you can help others. And see, the whole key to this whole thing is selflessness. We have to be willing to kind of crucify ourselves on the cross of Christ and reach out to others in humble love and stop trying to be a judge of everybody and and stop playing God and, and just minister as God wants us to minister. We're not to be superior over other people. We're not to have a double standard. We're not to be the hypocrite, Jesus says, over and over again. Does that mean if we see a brother or sister in sin that we just look the other way because, oh, well, you know, the pastor says, judge not lest you judge, so I'm just going to let them do their own? No, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. But that's a danger. A lot of times people will say, well, you know, judge not lest you be judged, so I'm just not going to say anything to anybody. As a matter of fact, there are churches today, beloved, that won't teach doctrine. And the reason they won't teach doctrine is because it can be divisive divisive at times. And they don't want to divide their flock. So they'll take this kind of mealy mouse kind of attitude towards some doctrines that are very clearly taught in Scripture. And they'll say, well, you know, we don't, we don't deal with prophecy stuff because that could be divisive. Or we don't deal with the charismatic issues because that could be divisive. Or we don't deal with this or we don't deal with that when God has plainly spoken about it. There are churches that even go, more, more liberal churches, they won't even speak out against homosexuality as a sin or, or anything because they don't want to, you know, in any way hinder their base of support. They're throwing the net real wide. And unfortunately, that kind of attitude has even dwelt, or kind of crept into some of our evangelical churches today. And so they just want to love everybody and everybody hold hands and sing kumbaya and the Lord will come back and, you know. That's not what Scripture says. Scripture says doctrine is a good thing. We should teach what the Word of God, the precepts that are found in the Word of God. And we should teach them with authority. And so he's, he's not saying here, don't ever make a judgment about anything. Because look at what he says when he comes down to verse 6. And this is kind of where we, we, we left off. Verse 5, he talks about having this plank removed. And we talked about the plank being self-righteousness. In other words, being having the attitude that you're more righteous than anybody else. That's really what he's talking about. And it paints the picture of somebody with a two-by-four coming out of their eye, working their way over to your side of the room to try to get a little 
speck out of your eye. That would be crazy. You would say, hey, man, take care of your own business first. Don't be coming to me. You know, you got a, a honking two-by-four sticking out of your head. You know, i got a splinter in mine. I'll, I'll deal with it. But see, so many times we don't see that. And we're quick to go help the other person when God is saying, hey, you know what? You need to take care of your own business first. And look at what he says in verse 6. And this is an interesting verse. He comes to verse 6, and it's almost like he's saying, don't take this as to never speak out against anything. Because in verse 6, he says, do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under your feet and turn and tear you into pieces. It's kind of a fascinating verse. We've heard this, but hopefully we can pull it all together here and help us understand what he's saying here. When he says there in verse 6, do not give what is holy to the dogs. Don't think of your, your, your little pet at home, little, you know, Bobo or whatever his name is, with the little collar and the little knitted jacket you put on him and, you know, jumps up on your lap and, oh, Bobo, so nice, you know. That's not what he's talking about. That's the furthest thing he's talking about. Back then, and even over there now, you can see packs of wild dogs running around. But back then, dogs were not something that were nice smelling. They didn't have little painted nails and little rhinestone collars and all sorts of things that we put on our pets today. They weren't little lap dogs. Basically, dogs in those days were mongrels. They were beasts. And in the Bible, even in Job, it talks about dogs helping with the flocks. But that was a trained dog. Most dogs weren't trained. Most dogs just ran throughout the city like wild savages. And they were usually ugly and they disgusting and they smelled. And they usually went to the, the city garbage dump to get their food. And usually they'd travel in packs. I mean, they were not something that was cute and fuzzy. Jews believed them to be unclean. They believed them to be filthy. The Old Testament says that. The Psalms, it says this, they howl, they snarl, they are a greedy, shameless group. See, dogs are this ugly kind of human being that he's talking about here. He's kind of making an illustration here. They weren't anything like we have today. They were savages. They were mongrels. And you say, well, what are the holy things? What, what's he talking about here? He says, do not give what is holy to the dogs. Well, see, when you came to the, the temple to make a sacrifice back then, basically the sacrifice would be presented to the Lord. And then you could take home part of that sacrifice that wasn't presented to the Lord to your, to your house and, and eat it, and, and that was fine. And then part of it you would give to the priest. And he would do what he would want to do with it. He would eat the meat or whatever and throw the bones out. All right? Well, the sacrifice that he's talking about here, the holy things, is that part that was given to the Lord. It would be like the priest walking in the temple, reaching up on the altar, taking what was offered to God and throwing it out to a bunch of savage wolves and, and, and dogs of the day. A priest would never do that. He would never do that. And that's really what he's, the illustration he's drawing here. That would be a horrible thing to do for a priest. He would be desecrating the holy things of God. And Jesus says, anybody 
knows that you don't throw a holy part of a sacrifice to a bunch of wild dogs. It's kind of a, it's a ridiculous illustration. It's way over the top. But that's his purpose. And what he's really saying here, he's saying, you know what? You better be careful in your ministry. You better be careful what you give out to whom. There are people, beloved, that you can go and you can sit down and think that you're going to have a Bible study with. And you know what they're going to do? They're going to mock everything you say. They don't believe in God. They don't believe in His Word. They're they're, they're basically going to turn it into a big, big mock session. And what Jesus is saying, you have to have the discernment, you have to have the judgment, proper judgment, to know when that's going to take place. Because we should never take that which is holy, the Word of God, and throw it to the dogs. It's a hard teaching. It's a hard truth. And he even goes on further and he gives a a different illustration. He not only talks about dogs, but he talks about hogs. He says in verse 6, don't cast your pearls before swine. You say, boy, that's kind of weird. Well, you know, back then a pearl was a very, very expensive thing. I mean, if you found one, you'd be lucky. And it would be like taking that out to a bunch of hogs, swine, and throwing it to them. And if you've ever thrown anything, to, my brother has a pig farm, so I know this. Whenever you throw, you could throw dirt at a pig and they try to eat it. It's like they don't, you know, they think it's corn or whatever. But they get a little upset when they start eating the dirt and it's like, well, this is not corn. This is not meal. This is not my dinner. Well, that's what he's saying. He's saying when you throw a pearl to a swine, they may think it's something to eat and they start munching on it. Well, you know what? They could turn on you and trample I'm tearing you to pieces because they're going to be upset. They're going to be ticked off. You don't throw pearls to swine either, just like you don't throw the holy things to dogs because they'll trample them under their feet and they'll get so angry at you, they'll tear you up. Now, it's kind of a a hard thing for us to really understand what he's kind of getting across to us here. But it's really, it's a tremendous truth when you come down to it. We have to be able to discern. We have to learn that we have to minister the Word of God, but we have to do so in a discriminating way. You don't take the Word of God and just, you know, go down and just start throwing it at people. That's not how you you give the Word of God out. You have to do it under the influence of the Spirit. You have to do it as God leads you to do it. You don't always say everything to everybody. If you've ever witnessed anybody, you know that. I mean, the worst thing you could do is sit somebody down over a cup of coffee, an unbeliever, somebody who hasn't put their faith and trust in Christ, and sit down with your Bible and just start preaching at them and tell them everything you know. I don't think they're ever going to sit down with you again. Matter of fact, they'll probably mock you. They'll probably say, that guy's off off his rocker. Never go to coffee with him again. So you have to be discerning in what you share with them. Now, you want to get them to a point where they're open to the gospel. You want to get them to a point where they're observing your life and they can say, hey, there's something different. But don't think so much of ourselves that we open their heart to the word of God because we don't. It's God that does that. Even in Corinthians, Paul says, I could not speak unto you certain things because you were carnal. He held certain things back from them because they wouldn't get it. He said, I wouldn't waste them on your misunderstandings. I wouldn't waste them on your sinfulness. 
Jesus, to his disciples, could only reveal certain things. He had to hide other things till the time was right. And to the world, it says he hid them them from them and revealed other things onto the babes. See, Jesus didn't say everything to any everybody in his ministry. Do you know that when Jesus rose from the dead, he never once appeared to an unbeliever as we have it recorded in Scripture? Never once? See, he had a discrimination. We have to evaluate. Hogs were basically the, the chosen refuge of demons, it says in Matthew 8. They were, they were filthy in, in the, the Jewish eyes. And the, the prodigal son, where does he end up? He ends up, you know, living with the hogs. They were considered unclean. And so he says, don't throw what is holy to the dogs, these mongrel dogs, and don't allow them to trample underfoot the, the, the hogs, these, these pearls, something valuable, the word of God. Don't allow that to happen. Don't put yourself in that, in that position. Turn over to 2 Peter, to the right in your Bibles, 2 Peter, chapter 2. And you say, well, who are these hogs and these dogs? What's he talking about? Look at what he says here in 2 Peter chapter 2. Verse 1, he says, But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false prophets among you. And I would add, even as there are false prophets among us today. He says, Who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. Verse 2 says, And many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber. He goes on, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into the chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing the flood on the world of the ungodly and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterwards would live ungodly and delivered righteous Lot, who was opposed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. And he goes on and he goes on there. And if you look down at verse uh Verse 9, he says, And then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and reserve the judgment under punishment for the day of judgment. Look down at, at verse 12. But these, like natural brute beasts, made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil things they do not understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption and will receive the wages of unrighteousness and he kind of lists off all these things down here. And he, you get all the way down, basically, to, to verse 18. 
He's kind of describing these. And then he says, For they will speak great swelling words of emptiness, and they lure through the lust of the flesh, through lewdness, and the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. And you, you follow it down, and it goes all the way, basically, to the end. It's talking about, remember, false prophets here. Verse 22, But it happened to them according to the true proverb, and look at what it says, A what? A dog returns to his own vomit. And a sow, a pig, having washed to her own wallowing in the mire. Who's he talking about? He's talking about false teachers. Hogs and dogs. He's talking about people who are out there discrediting the word of God. Don't spend your time out there. The Bible says that. You know, sometimes you see these things on TV or, you know, I heard of, of, of one believer that was going down when they had the gay parade in San Francisco and they were going to witness to everybody. I don't know. That may fall in this category. You're throwing the holy things of God before hogs and dogs because they're not open to the gospel. You know, it's, it, it's, that's a hard thing to say. Does that mean God can't work? No, I'm not saying that. See, our first reaction to someone like that is, is to give them the gospel. Give them the good news. But you know what? You can't just give somebody the good news unless you give them the bad news first. Until they come to grips with their own sinfulness, until they're willing to say, yeah, you know what? I need some good news. I'm lost in my own sinfulness. I'm a sinner. I need God's grace. Well, then you can come along with the gospel and say, hey, I got some good news for you. Jesus Christ died for your sin that you're now acknowledging. But for not most of those folks, beloved, they're not at that point. They're mocking God. They're mocking God. And sometimes it's hard to distinguish where to go with some of these things. When the disciples were sent out in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus said this, if you come to a place and they don't hear your message, what should you do? Persist? Should you continue to preach the gospel to them? No. It says you leave that place and you shake the dust off your feet. That doesn't sound like the friendship evangelism we have going around today in a lot of churches. I mean, you stop and you think, Jesus was so patient with somebody like Peter. He was even patient with Thomas. Remember doubting Thomas? I mean, he doubted everything Jesus said unless they proved it to him. He was patient with those two guys. But you know what? He did not say a single word to Herod Antipas. Not a single word. You don't think that guy was lost? Jesus did not say a single word to him. Why? Because he knew he had a hard heart. And Jesus wasn't going to waste pearls, the holy things of God, before swine or dogs. He wasn't going to waste his words on Herod. The Apostle Paul in chapter 18 of the book of Acts, he went and he preached to the Jews and basically they mocked him, they blasphemed him, they rejected him. And he said this, your blood be on you from now on. I'm done with you. I'm going to the Gentiles. He turned his back and he walked out. And you say, well, you know, what, what, what about them? You know, they're lost. Shouldn't we be concerned for their souls? Well, later on, some of them were saved. But you know what? They had to be saved by coming to the gospel at that point, not by the gospel coming to them because the gospel already came to them and they rejected it. 
And Paul turned his back and he walked out. There comes a time in ministry and in witnessing when you have to be careful. Even in John's epistle, he says this, if somebody comes to your door and he belongs to one of these false systems, one of these cults, one of these people that don't acknowledge who Christ is, he says, you don't invite him in and try to witness him to him over a cup of coffee. He says, don't let him in your house and don't wish him Godspeed. Does that mean you're rude to them when a Mormon comes to your door or a Jehovah Witness and they want to share their false doctrine, their false view of who Christ is, their false view, interpretation of the Bible with you? Are you rude with them? No. But you cut right to the chase. You don't need to spend time with those people. That's not what God has called us to do. You basically state it plainly and simply. And once they realize you're not, you're not about, to, about, about to change your mind, they're not going to hang around. They're not interested in learning. I don't know how many times Mormons have come to our door, basically shared what I shared with them, and they're always, well, you know, we'll have to, can we bring the elders back? Could we do, you can bring back whoever you want, pal. But you know what? And I've told them this, you won't. You won't ever come back here. Because you know this is the truth. And they don't. Well, how about Thursday? Okay, next Thursday you want to come back? It's almost in a mocking way. I agree to this. And they never show up. We don't need to spend time in that. And that's hard. You know, what's this holy thing? What is this pearl? It's the word of God. It's, it's, it's God's truth. We need to start treating God's word like he says it should be treated. With respect, with reverence. You know, we should, we should have a hunger. We should have a thirst. I mean, this is God's truth. This is God's letter to us. We shouldn't just, after church, go home and chuck it on the bookshelf till next week. We should spend time in it. That's how we grow in our faith. If you haven't begun your, your, your faith in the Lord Jesus, this is where you begin it. Get into the Word of God. Maybe you don't understand it. Ask God to help you understand it. He will. He'll give you the insight you need. He'll bring you to that point where you can acknowledge your own sin and cry out to a holy God and say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And it'll transform your whole life. So in no way, back to Matthew, is Jesus saying here, we don't make judgments and we don't look at things and make discernments. He's not saying that at all. He's talking basically here about our attitude. What's the attitude in our heart when we're making those judgments, those discernments? Is it holier than thou? Or are we more righteous? Do we know more? Is that the attitude? That's not. Are we questioning other people's motivation? We shouldn't do that. It all comes down to an attitude. Are we doing it to exalt ourselves and put other people down? That's not right. That's what he's talking about here. And then almost... It's kind of odd. In verse 7, he begins, kind of continues, the negative, the, the positive aspect of how we're to treat one another. But it really starts down in verse 12. So look at verse 12 with me of Matthew 7, because this is kind of the principle, the underlying principle of everything that he's teaching here. He says, Therefore, whatever you want men to do, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Now, we've been going through Matthew and, you know, we know this as the what? The golden rule, right? Um, do unto others as you would have to, them to do unto you. 
Um, and there's a lot of, you know, ethics. You look at that and say, well, that's a very ethical thing to do and all this stuff. And, and the world might get it right sometimes, but it, it doesn't get this thing right at all. Because basically what the world teaches in a nutshell, what every other religion teaches in a nutshell, is that, you know what, you don't want to do bad things to other people because of why? You don't want them to do bad things to you. That's what the world teaches. And you're saying, well, isn't that what Jesus... No, that's not what he's teaching. That's not what he's teaching at all. That's the furthest thing from what Jesus is teaching here in verse 12. Whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. You see the positive nature of this? It's not a negative thing. When we think of it, we go out and we say, well, would, if I went up to a, a, a four-way stop, would I want somebody to cut me off? No, well, I'm not going to cut somebody else off. It's always to the negative. Jesus turns it around and he's looking at it from the positive. He says in verse 12, therefore, because of everything I've just told you, whatever you want men to do to you, you notice that? It's not what you don't want men to do to you. It's what you want men to do to you. He shares here in these verses basically two truths that are very essential to our Christian faith. First of all, that God is our Father. And we've gone over that in past messages, so we're not going to go there now. But he talks about God being our Father. And, and secondly, he talks about us being brothers and sisters in Christ. He brings it down to a family unit. In Matthew chapter 22, he says this, The first and great commandment is to love the Lord God your heart, the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That's our relationship with the Father. And then he says, and the second is like unto that, it's similar, it's to love your who? Your neighbor as yourself. You can sum up everything the Bible teaches in those two truths. That we're a family. God is our father and we're brothers and sisters in this family. And it's consistent with the Old Testament, by the way. It's not a New Testament thing. It's even found in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind. Leviticus chapter 19. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's found throughout the Bible. And you notice there that at the end he says, For this is the law and the prophets. At the end of that verse. In other words, the whole law relates, as it relates to mankind, comes down to these verses. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Just another way to say the same thing. We're to love one another in the body of Christ. And since God is our loving Heavenly Father, we have that vertical relationship with Him, then the horizontal just follows in the wake of that vertical relationship. I mean, you go around and you try to love someone else as you would, you know, love yourself. That's not something you can do in the flesh. That's not something you can do by yourself. You have to rely on the power of God to do that. And so he boils it down to that principle. And the Pharisees, they were wrong on every point that Jesus ever brought up to them. They were wrong about themselves. They were wrong about the word of God. They were wrong about the world. They were wrong about morality, religion, money, possessions, everything. And they were even wrong about relationships because they taught basically, don't go out and do something to somebody if you don't want them to do that to you. 
the negative aspect of this. Jesus turns it around and he makes it positive. The whole point here that you need to say is all the way through this, he's making an effort to drive the Pharisees to come this desperate call that points out to them that they are unqualified to be in God's kingdom. That's what he's doing over and over again. And so you see here in verse 12 the principle, what this is talking about. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Um, Don't go out and criticize someone if you don't want them criticizing you. That's the negative aspect. But here, what he's doing is he's really turning it around. And he's saying, you know what? The next time you want something, the next time you, 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 you're desiring something, and you, you know somebody else is desiring the same thing, what Jesus is saying, you go give them what you want and deny yourself. And you say, what? That's crazy. That's crazy. See, he's not saying what is hateful to yourself, do not do to someone else. He's not saying that. See, that's what a lot of the the world religions say. They have that negative spin on it. He said, you know, I want you to do unto others as you would have them to do unto you in a positive way. The next time that you're blessing yourself with something, well, stop it and go bless someone else. Because what that does is it basically strikes right at the heart of our own selfishness. It does. We're a selfish people. We're utterly lost in in ourselves. We don't do certain things out of fear. Basically our egos. It's our, our protection of self. It's, it's selfishness, selfishness, selfishness. That's all we have. People say a lot of times, well, you know, honesty is the best policy. Why do they say that? The reason they say that is because they don't want to get caught in a lie. That's, that's why they say that. See, it, it's, it's just common sense protection. It's like, don't play with fire, or you'll get what? Burned. All right, protect yourself. See, that's what the world dishes out. And you say, well, is anything wrong with that? Within reason, no. We're not to be destructive to ourselves. But it's not something that we can do. We can't love someone in a selfless way. I don't care who they are. We have to allow God to do that through us. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, it says, despisers of those that are good and lovers of who? Themselves. See, that's the nature of the beast. That's who we are. Like Titus is told in chapter 3, verse 3, by the apostle Paul, men are hateful, hating one another. And it's that protect yourself mentality that kind of drives that whole thing. And so you have this negative ethic that's compelled by fear. And 
Jesus isn't talking about that. He's talking about a positive ethic that's based on love. That's why he says, whatever you want men to do to you. What would you want men to do to you? Stop and make a list. And he says, well, don't do that to yourself. Go do it to somebody else. And he's not saying because then they'll turn around and do it to you. That's not his point because we don't do things like that. That wouldn't be genuine, would it? I mean, do you give gifts at Christmas times just to get a gift back? You don't do that. Hopefully not. That wouldn't be right. And so he, he's saying here, you do unto other men in a good way. The way that you would want to be treated. That's what he's saying. And that sums up basically the law and the prophets. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul says this. I'm going to send Timothy to you guys. He's sending him to the Philippians. And he says this. Because I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ. They all seek their own. That's the day and age we live in. Everybody's seeking their own. Get all the gusto you can. Get everything you can for yourself. It's that fruit of the Spirit, that love that God wants us to have one toward another. And it simply means that you determine in your own heart what you would want for you and go do it for somebody else. That's what he's talking about. And you know what? There's no way you're going to be able to do that on your own. There's no way you can do that on your own. And so he says, basically, you're going to have to rely on God to do this for you. It's impossible. Now, he gives basically three reasons to keep this principle in the previous verses. Three reasons. And they're there in your notes, and we're not going to get through all these, so just relax. We're just going to get through maybe the first one. Well, we got to cut, dragged out the message from last week, and so. But the first reason there that we're to apply this principle, the idea that we should go do unto others as we would have them to do unto ourselves, first of all, God's promise to his children demands it. God's promise to his children demands it. Demands it. At the end of verse 12, it says, For this is the law and the prophets. And what he means by that, that's the point of all Scripture. It's the sum of the whole Old Testament. And if you stop and you think about the, the Ten Commandments in, in Exodus chapter 20, and you think of those, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not stare, steal, you, you shouldn't bear false witness, commit adultery, covet, all those things. All right, basically you're summing up, do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. Uh, you don't want them to kill you, hopefully. Uh, you don't want them to steal from you. You don't want them to covet from you or commit adultery against you. You know, basically, that's what that's saying. All the Ten Commandments is an expansion of these two principles. First of all, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And secondly, love your neighbor as yourself. You can sum up all the Ten Commandments and basically the whole law in those two simple phrases. Therefore, you, you won't kill, you won't covet, you won't lie. And the rest of the Bible basically comments on those things and expands those things. So if I need a new shirt, 
And I know that you need a new shirt. If I were to live out this principle, I should go buy you a new shirt. That's how radical this principle is. And you'd say, well, if everybody did that, what? Well, what about me? Don't I deserve a new shirt? That's the essence of the principle. James 2.8 calls it the royal law. If you're looking for the law of the king, the law that rules in the kingdom and the relationships of the kingdom, it says the royal law is this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. That's the same principle. It's identical. Over in Romans chapter 13, verse 8, Paul says this, Oh, no man anything but to love one another. And then he says this, For he that loves another has fulfilled the what? The law. It all ties together. When you love your neighbor as yourself, you've fulfilled the law. Because you're not going to kill him. You're not going to steal from him. You're not going to cheat him. And so forth. In fact, Paul goes on to say, The law says that thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it's briefly comprehended in the saying, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. He sums it all up there. I mean, people today say, Oh, the Bible's so complex, how could we ever... Just sum it up in those two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. And the second half of that, love your neighbor as yourself, envelops all of our personal relationships. If you love your neighbor as yourself, there are some things you don't do, right? You don't criticize. You don't condemn. You don't question their motives. That's the negative. That's verses 1 through 6. We've already been through that. And then you do what you would wish to be done to yourself. That's the positive side of this. See, it's the purpose of God that demands it. The whole thing is is wasted unless we're obedient to this principle. So the purpose of God would lead us to that word, obedient, to be obedient. The Bible says to obey is better than sacrifice. You can sacrifice all day long, but if you're not being obedient to the words of God as you know them, as he reveals them to you, all the sacrifice you're going to do is, is all for naught. Well, it's also basically not only for the, the, the purpose of God, but the promise of God there. We should keep it because he says in verse 12, therefore, and if you look back at verse 11, just what I said, you give somebody else your shirt that you were going to buy for yourself. Well, don't you, aren't you depriving yourself? Yes. And that's why it goes back to verse 7. He says what? Ask and it will what? Be given to you. See, this is a God thing. This drives us into the God realm. This is something we can't do on our own. Seek when you can't find how to discern and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. So many people say, well, this is dealing with salvation. No, it's not. 
dealing right, right what he's talking about here in the context. He says, whatever we ask and seek and knock for, we're going to receive. See, we can feel free all of a sudden to give to others what we would have for ourselves because we know God is going to provide for us. We're confident of that, especially when we're obeying His Word. Now, do we give away stuff just so God will give us stuff? No, that's not the principle. But this is a far cry from where we find ourselves living today. And I think the Lord eases into this in verse from verse 6 to verse 7 to verse 7 to verse 9, 10, and so forth. And he sums it all up. And you say, well, why doesn't he just give us this principle, verse 12, right up the front, and then follow it with all these illustrations and all this stuff? See, the main principle, the negative principle of human relations in verse 1 through 5 is judge not. We looked at that. Don't criticize. Don't be gossiping, backbiting critics, so forth. You don't want to do that. And then he turns it into the positive here. Talks about having a a splinter in your own eye. Take that out and and don't give what is holy to dogs. And then he eases into verse 7. See, we we want a checklist of how this thing kind of pans out. How do you know if you got the plank out of your own eye? How do you know if you're making the right judgment call? How do you know all these things? How do you know if you should give this shirt to... Well, in verse 7 he says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. He's relating it back to the vertical relationship with God. In other words, you can't do this horizontal thing on your own. That's his point. You have to go to God. You know, when you're out witnessing to somebody, how do you know how far to go in sharing the gospel with that person? If Jesus says, you know what? You don't want to just go out and and throw up the gospel on everybody because that's throwing pearls before swine and the holy things before dogs. Well, how do you know where to stop? How do you know where that marker is? Should you keep going? Until they're mocking you and mocking the word of God? Well, clearly no, but how do you know where's that line at? Well, he's saying go to God and ask him. See, God alone has that kind of discernment. We can't do that. We can't make that kind of a discerning judgment call. And so he says, you know what? You, you, you take this to God. That's his whole point. In James 1, he says, if you lack wisdom, where should we go? Go to God. And he gives it all men liberally and holds nothing back. See, we want everything in the Christian life boiled down to a bunch of little formulas. If I do this, this will happen. If we do, it's not always that way. And it's not that way for a reason. If it was that way, what would we be doing? We'd be just off doing our own thing. We wouldn't need God in the picture. I mean, he would have just passed us, given us a little book and said, here, follow the book. You're on your own. See you when you get to heaven. No, he says, you know what? You need me every day. And to make judgment calls like this, that's why you need me. 
There's more to it than just treating other people as you would have them treat you. Some people look at verse 7 and they think it's a, a blank check. Asking it will be given to you, seeking you will find. Knocking it will be open. Just kind of like, hey, that's, that's a, a prayer thing. And you just go and God will just do whatever, whatever you want. Well, that's not true. There's conditions there. First of all, it's only true if you're a child of God. If you don't have any relationship with the Father, what business do you have going to the Father to ask Him for anything? It'd be like the neighbor kid three streets over coming to your house and saying, Hey, where's dinner? Who are you? You're not my kid. I mean, that's what you would think. So you have to know God. Secondly, you have to be living in obedience to Him. Peter says our prayers can be hindered by our disobedience. 1 John 3.22 says, Whatever you ask, we receive of Him. And then he says this, Because we keep His commandments and are doing the things that are pleasing in His sight. Not in everybody else's sight, but in His sight. What do you do in His sight? You do everything you do in His sight. There's not one thing you do throughout the day or the night that God doesn't see you doing. So are we living in obedience to Him? You have to be a child of God. You have to live in obedience to Him. You have to do things in a selfless way with a selfless motivation. James 4.3 says, You ask and you receive not. Why? Because you're asking amiss. You're asking off target. And the reason you're asking, and God knows this, is because you want to you spend it on your own lusts. All you want is to fill your own lusts. And so you're, you're coming to God and you're asking Him, Oh God, please give me this, you know, work this out for me. Why? Why are you asking? Stop and ask yourself sometimes the next time you're praying for something in your life, Why am I praying this prayer? Oh God, please give me that promotion at work. Why are you praying that prayer? Well, so I can have more money, so we can make our payments. So we just, oh, wait a minute. Where does, where does God's will come into this? It's not a blank check. There are conditions. The other element here in verse 7 is, is that these are three present imperatives. In other words, it's the idea of keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking persevering till you get that answer. You don't just give up. You don't just give up. See, God wants us to truly understand what He's trying to communicate to us here. And He wants us to understand that as a family, as Christians, we're called to be part of the family of God. And as we're part of the family of God, God is our Father. As we have our vertical relationship with Him straightened out, then the horizontal relationship with each other comes into play. And what He's saying is, if you put this principle into practice, and the only way you can do that is if you trust Me, because you can't do it in your own flesh. It would be impossible. But if you want to treat others the way you would want them to treat you, in a positive way, you're going to have to rely on God to fulfill that in your life and in your heart. There's no way that we can do this on our own. 
It says in verse 8, For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him uh, who knocks, it will be opened. Why is that? Because that's the nature of God. That's the Father we serve. And he draws this illustration. You want to know what kind of father God is? Well, in verse 9, he says, Or what man is there among you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? I mean, what kind of dad would that be? You know, it'd be like little Gabrielle, my little granddaughter, coming up to me. And, um, you know, she she can't really talk yet. But when she's hungry, she wants something to eat. Um, She has a word, and I can't remember what the word is. Shame on me. Um, But she has this word, she says. And and you know that she wants something to eat. I think it's cracker or something. You know, it doesn't matter whether she's eating steak or it's cracker or cracker, you know. And so, you know, when she says cracker, you know that she's hungry. Well, what kind of grandfather would I be if, yeah, here, kid, gnaw on this. Here's a rock. I mean, you know, she puts a rock in her mouth and she starts chewing and she realizes that would be horrible. We don't serve that kind of father. That's what he's saying here. He says in verse 10, or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? Something that could potentially harm him? And then he says this in verse 11, if you then being evil, in other words, you are evil, you'll always be evil, that's just the nature of the beast, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Therefore, because of all that, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. For this is the law in the prophets. Because God is the God of love, of mercy, of grace. Of, 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 he supplies our every need, the Bible says. Therefore, you can do this unquestionably knowing that God will care for your needs. Don't you worry about that. You just do what God wants you to do. It's a promise to us. It's a pattern for us. It's also the the, the whole purpose. That's what he wants us to do. To live that faith out so that others could see there's something different here in this family of God. They treat each other a little differently. They treat other people a little differently. See, and unfortunately, so much of the church today has bought in to so many worldly principles. You go into a lot of churches and basically you're looking at an entertainment thing. I mean, it's, it's kind of like the world. It's almost like you're going to a concert. And it, that's unfortunate. That's not what God wants. He wants us to be different. He calls us to be different. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we pray this morning. Lord, is your word... Sometimes it's hard to discern, it's hard to understand, it's hard even to communicate sometimes. Lord, I pray that we would just focus in on that last verse, verse 12, that whatever we want men to do to us, that we will treat them the same way. And Lord, the only way we can do that is if we come to you and we ask you to work in our lives. We have to depend upon you. Father, I pray for those who are gathered here this morning that, Lord, as believers, that we would truly trust you each and every day to lead us, to guide us, to make those hard calls in the Christian life. It's not so easy all the time. And during those times, we need to rely on you. 
And I pray that we would stop being reliant upon ourselves and our own wisdom and our own discernment. And Lord, that we would turn to you and ask you to do that work in our hearts. Father, we also pray that if there's any here who have yet to put their faith or trust in you, Lord, I pray that it's, it's not rocket science. It's very simple. It's a step of faith. And Lord, you have to bring them to that point. Lord, I pray that they would realize their own sinfulness, their own faults. They would cry out to you, a holy God. And their prayer would be, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, that's a prayer that you will answer. You'll transform their life. You'll help them to be everything that you desire them to be. And more. And and Lord, we, we thank you for that. And so, Father, we just thank you for this morning. We pray that you would... Just bless us as we go out of this place and uh, bless us next week. Father, we look forward to how you're going to work. And we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.